Chapter 2 of Out of Death's Shadow. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Annie Mars. Out of Death's Shadow by Nicholas Carter. Chapter 2 The Fate of the Transgressor. At the time of Nick Carter's meeting with Cora Reese, she was but a novice in crime, and the detective was convinced by a study of her character that she needed only experience to make her a dangerous foe. Foiled in a scheme to enrich herself at the expense of Roland Garrett, a fortunate member of San Francisco society, she had turned upon Nick Carter, the author of her defeat, and had venomously announced her intention to get even. Perhaps it had even been her plan to try conclusions with the great detective in the city of New York, his headquarters, and perhaps the stay in St. Louis was meant to be but temporary and for the purpose of putting her in funds. After arranging a disguise which completely conceals his identity, Nick boarded a car bound for Broadway, transferred to that long thoroughfare which runs parallel with and through the river district, and near the hour of eleven found himself in front of the door of Luke Philbon's house. It was a small, one-story brick structure located but a short distance from the river, and near a large gain elevator. The house was in darkness and all was silent within. Nick pressed a button by the side of the door, and soon was heard a weak, querulous voice from within. "'Who's there? Someone to see Mr. Philbon on important business. Is he at home?' No, and he won't come tonight, I'm thinking. He said he had work to do at the office, and that would likely keep him until after midnight. I am his mother, I suppose you know. I took it for granted that you were. Has anyone been here to see him this evening? Yes, John Dashwood was here about an hour ago. No one else? No, what's the matter? Luke isn't in any trouble, is he? There was maternal anxiety in the tone of the voice. Nick believed that evasion would be charity. "'I hope not,' he said. "'Good night.' And he walked away quickly from the door before further and probably embarrassing questions could be asked. The patrolman on the beat was found. He had seen two men go from Broadway toward the Philburn house between nine and ten o'clock. They were not together, but were fifteen minutes apart. He had not been near enough to observe them closely, but was satisfied from the build they were both large men, that neither was Philbin, who was small and thin. Perplexed and dissatisfied, the detective went to the river end of the street. There was a rotten wharf extending towards the big grain elevator. It was short, and for a portion of its length the planking had been torn out. The night was clear, with a half-moon, and Nick picked his way about the wharf in the hope that he might find a clue to the night's mysterious proceedings. There was a possibility that Luke Philbin, determined on suicide, had given up the idea of going home to secure the revolver, to take which action he would have to tell a story that would deceive his mother, and that would be no easy task, and instead had thrown himself into the Mississippi. Nick, with his bull's-eye, investigated the water space under the wharf without much hope of making a discovery. If death by drowning had been Philbin's purpose, he would in all probability have jumped from the edge of the wharf into the river, and the swift current would have carried him far downstream. The water, muddy 
and but slightly disturbed carried nothing upon its surface that was out of the ordinary nick moved to a point where he could get an outlook on the short section of bank beyond the water he was rewarded by the sight of a human figure huddled up on the sloping bank of the levee a few feet from the water's edge the figure was that of a man with head bowed elbows on knees and face in hands as the light of the bull's-eye was washed upon him the man lifted his head with a start but made no effort to arise nick believed that a way to get under the wharf would be found at the street abutment hastening over the planks he soon discovered an opening and quickly descended the man was still there he had not moved walking over to him the detective saw a small thin man of about twenty-five with a haggard face and bloodshot eyes what do you want he asked in a surly tone i'm minding my own business here i want your confidence said nick kindly i am not your enemy i may prove to be the best friend you ever had the young man gazed stupidly at the detective then lowered his head and said in a voice broken with emotion no i have no friends that remains to be seen mr luke philbin my god do you know me there was a ring of abject despair in the utterance yes i know you now if i did not know you before for a few moments there was silence then nick asked what do you fear if i ever see daylight i fear the anger and vengeance of one man gabriel leonard yes how did you know by putting two and two together there was both fear and curiosity in the expression of philbin's face i am a friend of john dashwood and he is one man among a thousand that ought to satisfy you philbin groaned yes yes he huskily replied i can guess who you are you are nick carter and that means it means was the detective's quick interruption that you must tell the truth and that you need not fear me i have talked with your mother and i pity her son come confide in me for i believe you have been hounded into your present position i i can't tell you great drops of perspiration showed themselves on philbin's brow nick lighted a cigar let me help you a little he said easily you have been led into crime by a woman and you are afraid that if you betray her your life will be attempted am i right you are not far wrong said the young man wearily now if you can aid me in tightening the cords about this woman will not that furnish protection for you for how can you be harmed if the person you fear is in prison philbin shook his head then compressed his lips he was now sorry that he had admitted anything and he cursed his want of a backbone and he thought bitterly if i hadn't been a mean spiritless wretch i would never have got into this mess nick knew the nature he had to deal with he said quietly listen to me a moment and maybe you will find it advisable to change your mind you are the bookkeeper and cashier of the manufacturing company of which gabriel leonard is president and john dashwood is manager you've been stealing from the company the crime never would have been committed but for the evil prompting of a wicked woman who protesting love for you would have cast you aside the moment she received the money she urged you to steal tonight john dashwood surprised your guilty secret you had hidden the stolen money in the office and you went there to get it 
in pursuance of this woman's order. You did not get it, or if you did, it was taken from you. Dashwood allowed you to go. His heart overflows with charity, and and I assume he knows your mother. As you left the elevator, you saw the woman. You told her that the scheme had failed. She reproached you and cast you off. You then acknowledged your intention to go home, get a revolver, and blow out your brains. What induced you to reconsider that determination? Luke Philbin had listened to the clear exposition of his case in sheer amazement. No need to keep silent longer, he said in a husky voice. I'll tell you all. But he did not at once begin his story. For some time he sat without speaking, his eyes on the water. What thoughts passed through his mind the detective never guessed until his account with Philbin had been closed. This woman, he began in a steady voice, came to St. Louis a short time ago. I met her on the evening following her arrival here. It was at a Parisian beauty show, which has since been interdicted by the police. She was the star of the outfit, and my admiration seemed to please her. We had opportunity for a quiet confab, and she invited me to call upon her the next day. I was fool enough to do so, and before I had been with her an hour she knew about all my affairs. I have never associated much with women of her class, and she exercised all her powers of fascination so well that the next visit I promised to do all she wished me to do. I was infatuated, and when she painted in glowing colours a life abroad without work, a life that should be one long round of pleasure, I stood ready to furnish the means if such a thing were possible. She said we would require twenty thousand dollars, and proposed that I should steal that amount from the company. I could not see any way to the performance of such a thing. I told her that, though I was the cashier, there was never more than a few thousands in the safe on any one day, and that every afternoon before the banks closed, the money in the safe was banked. She had thought of that, she said, and could suggest a way out of the difficulty. I could every day hold out something, say a few hundred dollars as a rule, and more when the receipts should be unusually large and cover up for the shortage by falsifying the books. In this way, the $20,000 could be withdrawn within 30 days. The plan seemed feasible, for I was fully trusted by Dashwood, and before the expiration of 30 days, I had drawn out of the safe and secreted in the office $20,000 in banknotes. Of course, she did not take the numbers. But I did. There was no reason for it. Force of habit, I suppose, made me put them down. Did you keep the list? Yes, and I have it with me, but it is of no importance, as you must see before I have finished my story. Yesterday afternoon I saw Madame Marie, that's her name, and she took up the palmer's business when the beauty show shut up shop, and told her the twenty thousand would be ready tonight. Her eyes sparkled with pleasure, and she was never more gracious. All the details of our contemplated trip to Europe were gone over, and when I left her she promised to meet me across the street from the office at seven-thirty o'clock tonight. At 7.15 I went to the office and was surprised to see John Dashwood there and at work on the books. This was suspicious and I was all of a tremble lest he should discover one or more of my false entries. His first words told me that the game was up. Sit down, he said sternly. I shall have something to say to you before long. I waited in an agony of dread for nearly half an hour. Then Dashwood turned and faced me. You have been taking the firm's money, Philbin, he said sorrowfully. Why have you done so? 
and what has become of it. I was so taken aback, so overwhelmed by the gravity of my position, that I could only stammer a few inarticulate words. Come, he said, where's the money? In an instant my brain cleared up. I knew what I must do. I would give him the money, then go home, get my pistol, and blow out my brains. Taking the notes from their hiding place, I handed them to Dashwood without a word. Very well, he said kindly. Now go home, get a good sleep, and come around in the morning and we'll talk over this matter. So saying, he turned his back on me, opened the safe, put the notes in a box, and then relocked the safe. Before we looked up again, I was gone. Downstairs I met Madame Ray. She had become impatient over my delay and was beside herself with rage. When I told her what had happened, she lost all control of herself. While she upbraided me, the scales fell from my eyes. I saw that I had been tricked, that the woman cared nothing for me, had been using me as a tool to enrich herself. I left her, resolved to end my life. I went down the street, intending to take the first car for Broadway that came along. But the thought of showing my tell-tale face to any of the passengers so distressed me that I gave up the idea of riding and determined to walk the distance. I went down to Washington Street and from Washington Street to Seventh, and so on out to my home. But I did not enter the house. I knew I could not meet my mother's eye. Here great sobs shook his frame. I knew I could not invent a story that would be likely to allay her suspicions. No, if I wish to die, I must try some other way. I came down here to think over the matter, that's all. Did you see anyone on the wharf or in its vicinity as you came down? No. How long have you been here? I had been here about half an hour before you came. Nick regarded the young man thoughtfully. You have made a serious mistake, he said slowly, but not unkindly. But there's hope for you. Your nature is not a vicious one. I can't give you positive assurance, but my opinion is that you will not be prosecuted for what you have done. You don't know Gabriel Leonard, was the reply, given in a hopeless tone. He is hard, hard as nails. I know him, and there is my mother. Even if I escape prosecution, I must lose my place. She will discover the truth. I could not lie to her. You should have thought of your mother before, said the detective coldly. I know it, I know it, and I'm lost, lost. Go away, leave me to myself for a minute. Let me consider. Oh, my poor brain. The spectacle of Philbin's anguish was not a pleasant one, and Nick moved a few paces away, but he kept his eyes on Philbin, who, rocking his body and sobbing violently, seemed to be in the lowest depths of despair. Suddenly, with a wild laugh, he straightened up. I have settled it, he almost shouted. It's all right now. Nick rushed forward, seized him by the arm, and let the lantern's light fall full upon his face. What he saw filled him with dismay. What have you done? he demanded harshly. Got the stuff at the drugstore coming down here, was the answer, given with chattering teeth. Fooled you, didn't I? <laughs> the laugh quickly ceased. The face grew ashen, the form stiffened, there was a sharp rattle in the throat, and Nick, dropping his bullseye, caught the body as it was falling forward. Luke Philbin, weak instrument of a woman's wicked cupidity, was dead. A small file on the ground by the side of the body told the story of the fatal agency. It had contained prussic acid, one of the deadliest and quickest acting poisons known to the pharmacopoeia.
It had been procured that evening at a Broadway drugstore, for the label was there, and there were the death's head and cross bones below the word poison. By what representation had he obtained the poison? A visit to the drugstore would furnish the explanation. The detective was about to leave the spot when a sudden thought caused him to stay his steps. In Philbin's pocket was the list of banknotes which he had stolen and replaced. The peculiar happenings of the night contained mysterious suggestions. The list, apparently without value, might become useful. No harm in obtaining possession of it. It was found and placed in Nick's pocketbook. Now the detective hurried away to find a patrolman, state what had been discovered, and have the nearest police station notified. When this duty had been performed, Nick went to the drugstore where the prussic acid had been purchased. He had left the file where he had found it, for it bore evidence that would at the coroner's inquest in connection with an analysis of the contents of the dead man's stomach absolutely determine the cause of death. It was an all-night drugstore, and one clerk readily gave the information desired. He had known Philbin as a customer for many years, and the poison had been sold upon the representation that it was to be used for the asthma with which Philbin's mother was afflicted. Diluted with water, it is often used by asthmatics, said the clerk, and it gives quick relief. When informed that the poison had been used for quite a different purpose, the clerk was horrified. Nick Carter could do no more that night. He sought his room in Jefferson Avenue, but was an early riser. At nine o'clock next morning, he called at the office of the manufacturing company. It was closed. He went away, returning at ten o'clock. In response to his knock, the door was opened by Gabriel Leonard. His face was pale and there were dark circles about his eyes. He did not greet the detective with his usual hardiness. Where is Dashwood? was Nick's first question. I don't know, was the answer in a half-angry manner. Didn't Dashwood go home last night? No, I haven't seen him since early yesterday afternoon. Leonard passed a trembling hand over his forehead, met Nick's frowning gaze for an instant. Then his eyes sought the floor. End of chapter 3 Recording by Annie Mars